Hi, I'm Sabrina, and you're listening to Clearing Up Corona. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'll be chatting to a volunteer in the Oxford COVID-19 vaccine trials and to Dr Andrew Preston at the University of Bath about the science behind vaccines. But first, let's touch on COVID-19, conspiracies and social media with my fellow students, Liv and Martha. Hi, I'm Martha. I'm a final year pharmacology student at the University of Bath. And hi, I'm Liv. I'm a second year biology student at the University of Bath. Amazing. Thanks, guys. So, I mean, maybe to start us off, there's quite a lot of expectation being a science undergraduate student. Did you maybe want to talk about how you dealt with the overwhelming amount of information and if people expected to come to you for answers and that sort of thing? Personally, yeah, I did. I found that quite a lot of people who I know quite often asked me about what they were seeing in news and what information they'd been receiving, which is what I found was quite challenging as Mm. nobody had the answers then, let alone an undergraduate student. Liv, how did you find it? I definitely found the information being pumped out by the media was really quite overwhelming. There was a lot in a short space of time, especially since the government weren't sort of, they weren't really focusing down on the issue for a long, long time. And then it all sort of came out overnight in a, in a sense. To be honest, like there was so much information coming out, you know, whether that was social media or on the news in general, like it was only basically about coronavirus. Mm. It was overwhelming, as both of you mentioned, but I didn't actually know they'd coined this term, but it's actually been called the infodemic. So, you know, there were actually two demics going on, the pandemic and the infodemic is actually defined by who? So the World Health Organization as an excess of information. So that could be inaccurate or accurate. Um, which will make it really, really difficult to find reliable information. So, you know, both the epidemic and the pandemic are as dangerous as each other um, and can be, you know, quite misleading. Um, I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on social media, because it can be quite a positive and a negative thing. Definitely can be a bit of both. I generally ended up staying away from certain social media sites during the pandemic. I just found some were pumping out more false information. I know Twitter, for instance, in March, so that's when we went into lockdown, there'd actually been 550 million tweets, which included the words, you know, coronavirus, COVID-19, pandemic, you know, among similar terms. So that's just a shocking number of tweets Mm -hmm. relating to what was going on. So it's quite scary how much information is, is actually out there. And, you know, do we really know what's right and wrong and how much of it we can trust? So mm. let's talk coronavirus and terminology. So the term coronavirus actually refers to the group of viruses um, and they can cause illness in both humans and animals. So then when we look at COVID-19, which is a very popular word, COVID-19 is also known as coronavirus disease 2019, which refers to the respiratory disease and is obviously related to symptoms that the listeners may well have experienced. So I found this part quite confusing. So even though coronavirus disease 2019 has the word corona and virus in it, it's not actually referring to the virus that you're infected with, right? The virus mm-hmm. that you're infected with is SARS-CoV-2. I found that really quite confusing. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus you're infected with, and then COVID-19 are the symptoms you experience. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if any of you guys know what SARS-CoV-2 actually stands for. It stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, which is rather a mouthful, but um, essentially <laughs> it just sort of, it describes how, how you are infected with it. So it affects your lungs and your respiratory system. But there is a SARS-CoV-1, isn't there? Yeah, you may have actually heard about it. It was SARS-CoV-1, which was another type of a novel coronavirus. However, this emerged in 2002 to 2003 and was another SARS pandemic. It's actually interesting you say that because SARS-CoV-2, again, the virus we're experiencing right now, um, it has the highest transmission rate of SARS-CoV-1, you know, pandemic influenza 1918 and the pandemic influenza of 2009, which is quite crazy. It's, it's not surprising how many cases there are, really. So I know we've mentioned the word virus quite a lot, but... Do we maybe want to talk about what actually is a virus? Anyone have any thoughts on that? One of the main things I think of when I think of a virus is the fact that it's non-living. So it requires a host cell to actually replicate and live within. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're essentially genetic material within a protein coat that can only multiply within living cells. That's quite mm -hmm. a nice overall. So the reason we talk about that is obviously, you know, because SARS-CoV-2 is a virus, but also we're going to be looking at vaccines. And I think it's important to mention why this conversation is not revolving around antibiotics. I don't know if you guys wanted to maybe go into that a little further. Antibiotics targeting specific features of bacterial cells, which aren't seen in either human nor in virus cells. Mm -hmm. Then with the use of vaccines, there comes a lot of conspiracy theories. And that's where there can be a lot of miscommunication and a lot of people who think vaccines are bad for you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of debate as to where SARS-CoV-2 actually came from. Um, we know it became prevalent in China from December 2019. But, you know, some people think that it was it was it was man-made, essentially. There are multiple research papers that show that SARS-CoV-2 was not man-made in a lab. Um, the Lancet, for instance, said that it's very, very likely it had a natural origin. I mean, we do know that that coronavirus has a very high genetic similarity to SARS-CoV-2. It's actually 96% similarity. So a lot of papers have talked about SARS-CoV-2's origination from bats and its ability to you know survive and mutate within this species so that's that's definitely an interesting one yeah adding to that it's been found in pangolins it's been shown that the virus found in them is very close related to the SARS-CoV-2 as well as the bats one that, that's a really good point there's been so many other conspiracies one that really bothers me is the disinfectant one with Trump where he suggested that injecting yourself with disinfectant might help cure or prevent coronavirus. Yeah. The World Health Organization has come out and said that it will not protect you from COVID-19 and it can have tremendous negative effects on your health. So this is the exact point of there needs to be fact checking and receiving reliable sources. And obviously Trump is such a influential person that to have something like that said by him is just shows how widespread the misinformation can be. Yeah, absolutely. It's really quite terrifying. Let's move on. Let's move on from all this 
all, all this chat on Trump, but let's maybe talk about where you guys get your information from, you know, with coronavirus. Where do you look? I tend to sort of, I follow a lot of scientists on Twitter. These these professionals work in hospitals, so they're very much familiar with how this virus is, how it's working and how it's how it's affecting people. And it's just really interesting to see them discussing and research papers, like all this groundbreaking science that's been going on in the hospitals nowadays. Mm, yeah. And it just paints a black and white photo with the realistic statistics. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I mean, for me, I do like following the World Health Organization and the NHS website, you know, just on social media or just if I'm fact checking mm. stuff, just looking on their websites, they have actually a fact checker on the WHO website. I actually today found a website which essentially has, it's called a SHARE checklist. So S-H-A-R-E in caps locks. And essentially it's a checklist for you to look at before you repost any information whether that's related to COVID-19 or it's related to any other infectious disease that's going to come out or absolutely anything, whether that's like GM crops or I don't know about veganism, you essentially follow this list of things uh, to double check the information's correct. So I have with me now Dr Andrew Preston, a reader in microbiology at the University of Bath. So just to get us started, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit more about vaccines. What are they and how do they work? Sure, of course. So vaccines are, of course, usually injections uh, and they're aimed at protecting us against certain infections. So uh, ordinarily, when we first encounter an infection, if it's the first time we've seen it, um, our bodies are quite slow to respond to it. And the immune response takes a little while to establish and, and really become effective. And during that time, it's not uncommon for the pathogens and the infecting agent to establish itself and of course lead to a disease or an infection that we suffer mm-hmm. that we suffer from. But then in most cases, hopefully, that immune response becomes sufficient to clear, to, mm-hmm. to clear the infection. Of course, our symptoms resolve. But crucially, um, our, our immune system remembers that encounter. And so if we come across the same uh, microbe, same bacteria or virus again, our immune system recognizes it and kicks into action much more quickly and much more robustly than on that first encounter. To the, to, to the extent that usually uh, it's able to stop the pathogen from becoming established. And so hopefully we don't actually suffer another episode of disease. And that's the <laughs> memory aspect uh, of our immune system. Vaccines, they're aimed at mimicking that first encounter so that we go through that slow and relatively uh, weak response <laughs> against the vaccine rather than the infection. Of course, then the vaccine, if it's well-designed, as most are, won't actually be able to cause disease. And so we get that build-up, so that memory, without having to suffer from any of the symptoms of the actual disease. And then when we actually come across the pathogen now for the first time, the body sees it for the second time. And so we get that much more robust, faster response against the pathogen. And hopefully we're able to stop it from establishing itself and we don't suffer any disease because of that vaccine induced memory. So so would you say then that vaccines weaken the immune system? No, not at all. Yeah. It's something that happens completely naturally. So we, we don't have the capability of really 
um, modifying our immune systems much as perhaps we'd like to. So all we're doing is we're simply mimicking that first encounter, but in the absence of anything that could actually cause disease. You know, everything suggests that they should actually be uh, alleviating any suffering and, and actually fortifying our immune response because now we're training it to recognise things that we're likely to encounter in our environment. Mm. So then if we perhaps take a step back from vaccines and just look at the body's immune response, what are the barriers and defence mechanisms of the body when they come into contact with you know, a virus or, or bacteria? So we have a variety of, of um, what we call innate. So mm -hmm. they, they don't reckon that they're sort of more physical barriers against pathogens. So our skin, for example, is an excellent physical barrier. We have lots of you know, microbes all over our skin, but the relatively uh, sort of inert barrier that the skin is prevents them from entering the tissues underneath. We have a, a, an enormous variety of defences that actually, if you consider that every day we're bombarded by billions of different microbes, yet actually we remain, you know, for the most part, let's say, pretty healthy. It shows how, how sort of effective the, these natural barriers are. And so it's a relatively small proportion of those encounters where perhaps a pathogenic, so a disease-causing microbe, actually is able to, to breach those defences and then, then we need perhaps the, the, the parts of the immune system that have been discussed during COVID in particular sort of kick in. Mm -hmm. So would you mind explaining a little bit for our listeners um, about perhaps the specific responses, so the adaptive immune response? Sure, so this, this is the ones where we're really talking about those antibody molecules and then mm. other cellular ones. So these tend to um, kick in once the infection has really sort of taken hold, I guess. So maybe even after symptoms have started. So it takes several days, you know, anywhere between sort of three to seven days, for example, for antibodies to really start to be produced uh, against the, these infections. And then they take a while because the, the beauty about the antibodies and some of the other cells involved is that they, they're very specific against that specific pathogen. Mm -hmm. And that takes a few days for that system to really hone in and mold itself to recognize, for example, the COVID virus very, very specifically. Because we need to make sure we're not then attacking other friendly bacteria or worse still, molecules that are actually part of ourselves. And then you get an autoimmune reaction. So the main components, of course, are antibodies, so small protein molecules that stick to very specific structures, for example, on the COVID virus, and they tag it for mm. recognition by other parts of the immune system for destruction. And of course, they can block the virus from interacting with our cells. So, for example, most of the vaccines are aimed against the, the, the viral protein that sticks to the host cells. And by coating that with antibodies, it stops that interaction. And the aim is that we block the virus from being able to bind to, to our cells and thus infect in the first place. So you mentioned that the adaptive immune response is specific. So would you say that the innate immune response is non-specific? Relatively so. So, for example, inflammation, which is something I think we all sort of talk about, is part of our innate response. It's non-specific, but actually, again, it's remarkably um, effective at mopping mm. up those, those, those microbes, for example, that might find itself having got through that first line of defense without committing the whole immune response to the, to the much longer, more costly um, 
sort of adaptive response. Response is, is very early, it's from the first moments that we mm. detect it. And that immune response actually then starts to pre-arm the adaptive response. So it warns the body that we have something that might turn into a more established infection and it creates the environment where the adaptive response could now hone in on the particular agent and deal with it if, if, if required. And I know you touched a little bit on, you know, memory and immunological yes. memory. Would you mind maybe speaking a little bit more about that? Sure. So, uh, Try and keep it relatively simple, though it is, you know, even even, even <laughs> discussing to, to, to the undergraduates at Bath, it's a, it's a complex system. So this is where some of the um, cells that get stimulated on recognising, so now we're talking about the adaptive cells, so those cells mm -hmm. that produce the antibodies or other classes of cells called T cells that actually directly kill uh, invading microorganisms or, or viral infected cells. Some of those, when they get triggered, turn into what we call the effector cells. So they, you know, the antibody secreting cells that give rise to those very high levels of antibodies that we see in the blood of, of people that are infected. Or some of these T cells that I know have been discussed in terms of vaccine um, that can be particularly effective against virally infected cells. A good proportion of those cells that get stimulated stay as effector cells and they die down relatively quickly once the infection has passed but a small percentage of them go into a different fate and they then become these memory cells that have very very long lived they don't necessarily contribute to dealing with that first infection but they commit themselves to this very long-lived sort of sentry type activity but they're the ones that are going to be around to detect the subsequent encounter with the pathogen so they're the ones that detect it and then on detecting it for that second time they become activated they start dividing so they increase in their number dramatically and they then turn into the effector cells that deal with that subsequent infection and again the idea is that only those cells that are really really specific to that pathogen Will, will turn into those effector cells. So again, we're armed to respond to that pathogen only very, very specifically and not some other completely innocuous signal. So we've spoken a little bit about how the body responds to invaders. Let's maybe put this into the, co into the context of, of vaccines. So what is the difference between what we've just spoken about, you know, the, the body's immune response to invaders versus how vaccines work? Very little difference, really. The, the mm. body doesn't know it's a vaccine because the vaccines comprise molecules that we know. Um, usually the, the, the molecules that would also be present on one of these infectious uh, microbes. And so the body thinks it's, it's, it's the microbe. So it goes through the full um, repertoire of its responses that we've just described and it will actually attack the vaccine. So it treats it like an invader. But the important thing, of course, is that some of those cells get induced to be those long-lived memory cells. Mm. So long after the vaccine has cleared, the next encounter is likely to be the actual microbe itself. So the COVID virus, for example. And so the, the, you know, the, the body, as far as it's concerned, recognizes exactly the same thing. That, that viral protein, it triggers that really fast and robust response. And this time the effectors, of course, are now dealing with the actual virus, mm -hmm. not the vaccine. So actually, the vaccines are just direct mimics of the you know, of what the body sees during an infection, and that's yeah. why really they are just um, 
triggering a completely natural response that happens anyway when, when we get these infections. There's been a lot of chat about herd immunity. Would you mind explaining to our listeners, you know, what herd immunity actually is and why it's important in, you know, keeping the population safe? Sure, so herd immunity is the concept that um, to sort of perhaps at the extreme end to eradicate an infection altogether, you don't necessarily need every single member of the population to be immune. Mm-hmm. So you reach a point where by the pathogen just doesn't encounter new susceptible hosts anymore. So it's, you know, it's just the chances. So once you reach a certain level of people that are immune, the virus essentially stops transmitting because mm-hmm. the chances of it going into someone who, who's still not immune become so low that um, it tends just to fade out. And so herd immunity is just really describing that effect that, that once you get enough people immune to an infection, it protects the whole herd or the whole population. The media has talked quite a lot about the possibility of herd immunity um, occurring naturally. And, you know, we've seen that being talked about in Sweden. And I know Boris Johnson um, mentioned it as a theory to deal with COVID-19. So is it actually safer to catch the virus naturally or is it safer to be vaccinated against the virus? Safety is a slightly, I guess, ambiguous term. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. then you've got to distinguish between the individual versus the the population level. So in terms of just direct safety, then um, if you can achieve the same overall long-term protection through vaccination, then then the chances are you can get that herd immunity without having all of those cases of disease. So that would be really your your optimum (laughs) to achieve that. And we we, we can generate herd immunity using vaccines. We've done it for a number of different uh, infections. Um, Of course, in terms of COVID, it's Mm. been that weight. So all of the the, the collateral damage that is done by by the, the current interventions, so the restrictions and the lockdowns, the effect that it has on other health services, mental health, and of course the economy. Absolutely. So it really has been the debate about whether um, we need to try and achieve the ultimate protection from herd immunity by, by natural infection, and we get that done much quicker, mm. as opposed to waiting until we can achieve herd immunity, if we can, um, through vaccination, which of course probably delaying everything by about a year. So it's really about assessing the different people's views on, on which is going to do more damage, um, letting the virus run riot and achieving herd immunity, but more quickly that way, mm. or, or waiting until we can do it without all of the cases of COVID disease through vaccination, but accepting then there's, of course, going to be a lot of other issues um, through, through the restrictions that we're currently living through. If we take maybe herd immunity out of the picture and we just look at maybe one individual um, who could either catch SARS-CoV-2 or um, be vaccinated how would you look at that situation like which one do you think would be safer? Time will tell I mean although I've painted the picture that the vaccines trigger this completely natural immune response Mm. and that there are some subtle differences so so for example some some pathogens either bacteria or viruses they, they they exist solely by circulating, for example, amongst people. Mm-hmm. 
And therefore they have evolved mechanisms to interfere with perhaps say that memory response, because otherwise if everyone became completely immune to them on their first encounter, mm. then they would run out of hosts very quickly. And that's why we get this issue that, for example, that some of the other coronaviruses, they don't induce long lasting immunity, even when you've, you, you, you know, you've caught an infection from them. So there's no guarantee, I think, and then this has certainly been something that's discussed with COVID uh, the last couple of weeks with some of these cases of very clear reinfection of people. Uh, so they've caught COVID now twice, quite clearly. There is this, this thought that not everybody is going to have long lasting immunity, even if they've caught, you know, suffered from COVID disease. Yeah. So there could be an advantage to vaccination in that what we do is we tend to, you know, we can pick certain parts of the virus and trigger this protective immunity with just those parts. And sometimes in, when, you, when you do that in the absence of other viral components that maybe interfere with the immune response, you can actually get a much longer lasting or even better immunity than we get from natural infection. Mm. So the, the two, you know, there can be some clear differences between natural immunity and vaccine induced immunity. But I think actually it's too early to say yet. We don't have all the data as to um, the type of immunity that we can get from some of the vaccines that are in development. It's, it's you know, there's a lot of simple, you know, I guess, just unknowns. Mm. Don't know how protected people are going to be after having caught COVID yeah. uh, or how long that immunity might last. But on the, the flip side, also, we don't know the same parameters. We, the same unknowns exist for the vaccines at the moment. Yeah. I have with me now Sam. So Sam's a friend, a fellow biochemistry undergraduate student. And actually, he's also a member of the Oxford COVID-19 vaccine trials, which is pretty interesting, right, Sam? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite an experience and it's, uh, it's still ongoing, should be uh, ongoing for quite a while. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, a little bit about your experiences. Like, why sure. did you actually get involved with the trial? And how did you hear about it? So I heard about it uh, from a friend, actually, uh, also at the University of Bath. It was, it was around April time, lockdown was just starting. Uh, and I think it, it was a really interesting opportunity. And it was an opportunity for me to, to do something. Mm. I think a lot of people can relate to, to a bit of a feeling of uh, powerlessness. You kind of just watch the world change around you. Um, so to be offered the opportunity to, to get involved and potentially um, sort of play a, a small part in, in making a big difference was really appealing. How did you find it, you know, being, I mentioned we're, we're both studying biochem, so being mm. a biochemistry undergraduate and like maybe understanding what's going on, do you feel like you maybe felt more safe in that sense or? Yeah, I think that was, that was definitely a, a component of it for me. I, I did, I did my own research. I wanted to sort mm. of understand uh, where this was coming from and, and um, a bit about the, the kind of people running it. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So that, you know, that definitely made me more, more comfortable. With, with getting involved. So the vaccine they're looking into is essentially using a chimpanzee adenovirus as a vector. So don't worry too much about the word adenovirus. They're basically a family of viruses, right, Sam? Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, so, so they're actually um, one of the types of viruses that cause the, the common cold. Um, so they're, they're quite a kind of commonly um, studied uh, a virus. Yeah, absolutely. So this chimpanzee virus works as a vector so it will basically contain genetic information of an identifier spike that is found on the outside of the SARS-CoV-2 
Mm, so yeah, the, the that spike protein, um, as as it's as it's often called, you you might hear quite a lot a lot about that, and that's because it's it's kind of the the unique um, sort of unique identifier of this particular virus. Uh, it's unique to SARS-CoV-2, and the reason it's so important is it's how the virus enters uh, cells to infect them. Uh, so so it's the spike protein. I think the best way to think about it is is almost like a key and there being a lock on the um, on your cells. So this key just fits into that lock, opens the opens the door effectively and allows access into uh, into the cells and to infect the cells. And that's why it's so important uh, and of such interest to to scientists. So after you're vaccinated with this vector, your body will produce antibodies that can recognize the spike protein we were talking about and will help prevent infection if you contact the virus. Yeah, so so what that means is that um, without being exposed to the potentially very dangerous virus itself, mm-hmm. your body's being given the the kind of tools it needs to attack it. It's being taught um, how to to fight this uh, virus in a safe way, mm-hmm. and that's that's the basis of of all vaccinations, really. Yeah, and then I suppose it's not like they're injecting like a, ve- a replicating virus into your body. Yeah, so so that's that's an important point as well. It's it's non-replicating. It's a non-replicating virus, and that means that it can't. Uh, you can't have an infection in the normal sense. I suppose this one. So it's an adenovirus vector vaccine. It's a bit different to other types of vaccines, you know, such as live attenuated, which can't be given to anybody, right? Yeah, so so I think live attenuated. That's uh, you might come across that more often in the seasonal flu vaccine mm-hmm. uh, and others others like that. So what we mean when we say uh, live attenuated is if we take the example of flu, you'll take the actual live uh, flu virus, um, but treat it in a way that's attenuation to weaken it. So it's still live, but as you say, it still can't be given to everyone. Mm-hmm. As you said, they can't really be given to people with weakened immune systems. And that's a little different to other kinds of vaccines. There are inactivated vaccines, which, you know, kind of does what it says on the tin, like completely inactivated and toxoid vaccines, which actually contain toxins, which I don't think are really spoken about much. But literally, like toxins are actually, you know, injected into your body and they'll cause similar memory cells to be produced. So you mentioned a few technologies there, but there are there are even some some newer ones coming online. Mm-hmm. Uh, one particular one is the uh, RNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, so we mention the genetic material for that spike protein. Yeah. How it works with a with an RNA vaccine is you're basically going straight to that genetic material and putting it straight into um, into the patient, and then the same process occurs whereby that's used to build. The, the spike protein that the immune system can can recognize and that hopefully will give you immunity to uh, SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus causing COVID-19. So these RNA vaccines mm. um, are being looked into by a couple of groups for COVID-19 vaccines. I think it might be nice to have a little chat about the actual stages of vaccine clinical trials. Yeah. I mean, on the news, they've been mentioning, you know, stages two and three. But what do they actually mean? Like, I think this is quite an important question. Yeah. So, so it's you, you hear this, you know, phase one, phase two, mm. phase three kind of uh, used a lot. But it's it's relatively simple to to explain. So so there are three main phases. 
And those three phases are describing the human trials. And those come after what we call preclinical trials. So that would be lab studies and some animal studies uh, where necessary. So phase one, that's really the first time you're putting a drug or in this case vaccines into people. Uh, and so it'll be a relatively small number of healthy people. And the goal of phase one is really to check for safety because um, the most important thing with any drug or vaccine is safety. That's always the, the number one priority. So that's what uh, phase one really focuses on. Phase two spreads that out to a larger number of people. And at that point, they're starting to look into how effective the vaccine is, continuing okay. to, to consider safety, but starting to get a sense of, of how it's actually working. Yeah. And you also, um, an important part of this process is uh, the presence of a placebo group. And so that's basically a control, a group that doesn't get the vaccine that you can compare to. Phase three is really where you start scaling it up and, and giving it to, to basically as many people as possible to, to check the, the effectiveness. That's really the main goal of, of phase three. Yeah. In the case of vaccine, you give it to lots of people and then you can basically uh, look at the amount of antibodies they produce. And that's kind of how we measure the immune response to a vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to put that into context a little bit, a lot of trials at the moment, you know, including Moderna and Oxford, are actually on phase three. And there are actually 44 candidate vaccines in clinical evaluation, according to the World Health Organization, which is quite a lot. As we mentioned, you know, there are quite a lot of trials going on. Um, but I didn't realise it was that many, but it's definitely a good thing. And I think something that's that's worth mentioning is that, you know, as opposed to cancer treatment, which are mm. given to people who, who can be, you know, severely ill, vaccines are given to people who are healthy. And it's not a few people, it's, you know, whole populations. And it can be, you know, children or even elderly people who have these vaccines. So it is really important for scientists to look at the risk taken and they don't like to take a lot of risk they really try and minimize that and you know they want to have minimal side effects and make sure that the vaccines are most as effective as possible essentially so um what are the next stages for for the COVID-19 you know Oxford trials or vaccines in general? I would guess that uh, a key part of of kind of expanding the testing that they're doing on this on this vaccine would be to start giving it to uh, some people in the more vulnerable groups such as elderly mm. or people with some other diseases that thus far haven't been involved in the trial, um, particularly when it's been focusing on safety. Um, because the thing is, those people are going to be the people that are most vulnerable to a COVID-19 uh, disease. Yeah. And so they're really the people that we want to, to vaccinate first, ideally. Mm. And so it'll be really interesting to see how some of these vaccines work in those uh, in those patients, mm. people that perhaps have uh, generally, as you get older, your immune system becomes slightly sort of slower, less responsive. And so you can get a lesser response to vaccines. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these trial vaccines fare in those populations. As I say, it's so important that they are protected kind of before. It's it's kind of there's a it's a weird thing to it. It's it's young people, healthy people that are tested um, first. But at the end of the day, it's the more vulnerable people that we really yeah. want to vaccinate. So that's kind of the, the end goal, I'd say. That's why it's important, you know, for people who can be vaccinated to, to get vaccinated because you'll be protecting others who, who might not actually even have the choice. So it's much bigger than just the individual, isn't it? It's, you know, we talk about herd immunity a lot. It's definitely, mm -hmm. you know, 
being vaccinated you're you're doing your bit for the community you're you're protecting others essentially aren't you oh absolutely i mean the more people that become vaccinated um against all diseases the less those diseases can spread through the community so yeah it's, it's really important and that's um yeah it's a it's a vital point really i'd like to thank all of our guests for their time and also a big thank you to the listeners I hope you found this podcast interesting and maybe it cleared up some of the science behind COVID-19 and the race for a vaccine.